Chapter Fifth, Parts One to Three of God the Invisible King. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. God the Invisible King by H. G. Wells. Chapter Fifth, Parts One to Three. Chapter the Fifth, The Invisible King, One Modern Religion, a Political Religion. The conception of a young and energetic God, an invisible prince growing in strength and wisdom, who calls men and women to his service, and who gives salvation from self and mortality only through self-abandonment to his service, necessarily involves a demand for a complete revision and fresh orientation of the life of the convert. God faces the blackness of the unknown and the blind joys and confusions and cruelties of life, as one who leads mankind through a dark jungle to a great conquest. He brings mankind not rest but a sword. It is plain that he can admit no divided control of the world he claims. He concedes nothing to Caesar. In our philosophy, there are no human things that are gods and others that are Caesar's. Those of the new thought cannot render unto God the things that are God's, and to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Whatever claim Caesar may make to rule men's lives and direct their destinies outside the will of God is a usurpation. No king nor Caesar has any right to tax or to service or to tolerance, except he claim as one who holds for and under God, and he must make good his claim. The steps of the altar of the God of youth are no safe place for the sacrilegious figure of a king. Who claims divine right plays with the lightning. The new conceptions do not tolerate either kings or aristocracies or democracies. Its implicit command to all its adherents is to make plain the way to the world theocracy. Its rule of life is the discovery and service of the will of God, which dwells in the hearts of men and the performance of that will, not only in the private life of the believer, but in the acts and order of the state and nation of which he is a part. I give myself to God, not only because I am so and so, but because I am mankind. I become in a measure responsible for every evil in the world of men. I become a knight in God's service. I become my brother's keeper. I become a responsible minister of my king. I take sides against injustice, disorder, and against all those temporal kings, emperors, princes, landlords, and owners who set themselves up against God's rule and worship. Kings, owners, and all who claim rule and decisions in the world's affairs must either show themselves clearly the fellow servants of the believer or become the objects of his steadfast antagonism. 2. The Will of God it is here that those who explain this modern religiosity will seem most arbitrary to the inquirer, for they relate of God, as men will relate of a close friend, his dispositions, his apparent intentions, the aims of his kingship. And just as they advance no proof whatever of the existence of God but their realization of him, so with regard to these qualities and dispositions they have little argument but profound conviction. What they say is this, that if you do not feel God, then there is no persuading you of Him. We cannot win over the incredulous. 
and what they say of his qualities is this, that if you feel God, then you will know, you will realize more and more clearly, that thus and thus and no other is his method and intention. It comes as no great shock to those who have grasped the full implications of the statement that God is finite, to hear it asserted that the first purpose of God is the attainment of clear knowledge, of knowledge as a means to more knowledge, and of knowledge as a means to power. For that he must use human eyes and hands and brains. And as God gathers power, he uses it to an end that he is only beginning to apprehend, and that he will apprehend more fully as time goes on. But it is possible to define the broad outlines of the attainment he seeks. It is a conquest of death. It is the conquest of death, first the overcoming of death in the individual by the incorporation of the motives of his life into an undying purpose, and then the defeat of that death that seems to threaten our species upon a cooling planet beneath a cooling sun. God fights against death in every form, against the great death of the race, against the petty death of indolence, insufficiency, baseness, misconception, and perversion. He it is, and no other, who can deliver us from the body of this death. This is the battle that grows plainer. This is the purpose to which he calls us out of the animal's round of eating, drinking, lusting, quarreling, and laughing, and weeping, fearing and failing, and presently of wearying and dying, which is the whole life that living without God can give us. And from these great propositions there follow many very definite maxims and rules of life for those who serve God. These we will immediately consider. 3. The Crucifix But first, let me write a few words here about those who hold a kind of intermediate faith between the worship of the God of youth and the vaguer sort of Christianity. There are a number of people closely in touch with those who have found the new religion, who, biased probably by a dread of too complete a break with Christianity, have adopted a theogony which is very reminiscent of Gnosticism and of the Paulician Catharist and kindred sects to which allusion has already been made. He, who is called in this book God, they would call God the Son, or Christ, or the Logos, and what is here called the darkness, or the veiled being, they would call God the Father. And what we speak of here as life, they would call, with a certain disregard of the poor brutes that perish, man. And they would assert, what we of the new belief, pleading our profound ignorance, would neither assert nor deny, that that darkness, out of which came life and God, since it produced them, must be ultimately sympathetic and of like nature with them and that ultimately man, being redeemed and led by Christ, and saved from death by him, would be reconciled with God the Father. And this great adventurer, out of the hearts of man that we here call God, they would present as the same with that teacher from Galilee who was crucified at Jerusalem. This probably was the conception of Spinoza. Christ, for him, is the wisdom of God manifested in all things, and chiefly in the mind of man. Through him we reach the blessedness of an intuitive knowledge of God. Salvation is an escape from the inadequate ideas of the mortal human personality to the adequate and timeless ideas of God. 
Now we of the modern way would offer the following criticisms upon this apparent compromise between our faith and the current religion. Firstly, we do not presume to theorize about the nature of the veiled being, nor about that being's relations to God and to life. We do not recognize any consistent sympathetic possibilities between these outer beings and our God. Our God is, we feel, like Prometheus, a rebel. He is unfilial, and the accepted figure of Jesus, instinct with meek submission, is not in the tone of our worship. It is not by suffering that God conquers death, but by fighting. Incidentally, our God dies a million deaths, but the thing that matters is not the deaths, but the immortality. It may be he cannot escape in this person or that person being nailed to a cross or chained to be torn by vultures on a rock. These may be necessary sufferings, like hunger and thirst in a campaign. They do not in themselves bring victory. They may be necessary, but they are not glorious. The symbol of the crucifixion, the drooping, pain-drenched figure of Christ, the sorrowful cry to his father, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? These things jar with our spirit. We little men may well fail and repent, but it is our faith that our God does not fail us nor himself. We cannot accept the Christian's crucifix or pray to a pitiful God. We cannot accept the resurrection as though it were an afterthought to a bitterly felt death. Our crucifix, if you must have a crucifix, would show God with a hand or a foot already torn away from its nail, and with eyes not downcast but resolute against the sky, a face without pain, pain lost and forgotten in the surpassing glory of the struggle and the inflexible will to live and prevail. But we do not care how long the thorns are drawn, nor how terrible the wounds, so long as he does not droop. God is courage. God is courage beyond any conceivable suffering. But when all this has been said, it is well to add that it concerns the figure of Christ only in so far as that professes to be the figure of God, and the crucifix only so far as that stands for divine action. The figure of Christ crucified so soon as we think of it as being no more than the tragic memorial of Jesus, of the man who proclaimed the loving-kindness of God and the supremacy of God's kingdom over the individual life, and who, in the extreme agony of his pain and exhaustion, cried out that he was deserted, becomes something altogether distinct from a theological symbol. Immediately that we cease to worship, we can begin to love and pity. Here was a being of extreme gentleness and delicacy and of great courage, of the utmost tolerance and the subtlest sympathy, a saint of non-resistance. We of the new faith repudiate the teaching of non-resistance. We are the militant followers of and participators in a militant God. We can appreciate and admire the greatness of Christ, this gentle being upon whose nobility the theologians trade, but submission is the remotest quality of all from our God, and a moribund figure is the completest inversion of his likeness as we know him. A Christianity which shows, for its daily symbol, Christ risen and trampling victoriously upon a broken cross, would be far more in the spirit of our worship. It is curious, after writing the above, to find in a letter written by Foss Westcott, 
Bishop of Durham, to that pertinacious correspondent, the late Lady Victoria Welby, almost exactly the same sentiments I have here expressed. If I could fill the crucifix with life as you do, he says, I would gladly look on it, but the fallen head and the closed eye exclude from my thoughts the idea of glorified humanity. The Christ to whom we are led is one who hath been crucified, who hath passed the trial victoriously, and borne the fruits to heaven. I dare not then rest on this side of the glory. I find, too, a still more remarkable expression of the modern spirit in a tract, The Call of the Kingdom, by that very able and subtle Anglican theologian, the Reverend W. Temple, who declares that under the vitalizing stresses of the war, we are winning faith in Christ as an heroic leader. We have thought of him so much as meek and gentle that there is no ground in our picture of him, for the vision which his disciple had of him, his head and his hair were white, as white wool, white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto burnished brass, as if it had been refined in a furnace, and his voice was as the voice of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth proceeded a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. These are both exceptional utterances, interesting as showing how clearly parallel are the tendencies within and without Christianity. End of chapter 5th, parts 1 to 3. Recording by William Tomko.